Section 16 of the Hohenzollerns in America by Stephen Leacock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Echoes of the War, 7. Some Startling Side Effects of the War. There is no doubt, said Mr. Taft recently, that the war is destined to effect the most profound uplift and changes not only in our political outlook, but upon our culture, our thought, and most of all, upon our literature. I am not absolutely certain that Mr. Taft really said this. He may not have said uplift, but I seem to have heard something about uplift somewhere. At any rate, there is no doubt of the fact that our literature has moved, up or down. Yes, the war is not only destined to affect our literature, but it has already done so. The change in outlook, in literary style, in mode of expression, even in the words themselves, is already here. Anybody can see it for himself by turning over the pages of our fashionable novels, or by looking at the columns of our great American and English newspapers and periodicals. But stop, let me show what I mean by examples. I have them here in front of me. Take, for example, the London Spectator. Everybody recognized in it a model of literary dignity and decorum. Even those who read at least admitted this most willingly. In fact, perhaps all the more so. In its pages today one finds an equal dignity of thought. Yet somehow the wording seems to have undergone an alteration. One cannot say just where the change comes in. It is what the French call a je ne sais quoi, a something incisable, a sort of nuance, not amounting of course to a lure, but still, how shall one put it, something. The example that is given below was taken almost word for word, indeed some of the words actually were so, from the very latest copy of The Spectator. Editorial from the London Spectator, showing the stimulating effect of the war on its literary style. There is no doubt that our boys and the Americans are doing some on the Western Front. We have no hesitation in saying that last week's scrap was a cinch for the boys. It is credibly reported by our correspondent at The Hague that the German Emperor, the Crown Prince, and a number of other guys were eyewitnesses of the fight. If so, they got the surprise of their young lives. While we should not wish to show anything less than the chivalrous consideration for a beaten enemy which has been a tradition of our nation, we feel it is but just to say that for once the dirty pups got what was coming to them. We are glad to learn from official quarters that His Majesty King George has been graciously pleased to telegraph to General Pershing, Soak it to em, and then some. Meantime, the situation from the point of view both of terrain and of tactics remains altogether in our favor. The deep salient driven into the German lines near Soissons threatens to break up their communications and force a withdrawal on a wide front. We cannot make the position clearer to our English readers than by saying that our new lines occupy, as it were, the form of a baseball diamond, with Soissons at second base, and with our headquarters at the home plate, and our artillery support at third. Our readers will at once grasp the fact that, with our advance pivoted on the pitcher's box, and with adequate cover at short, the thing is a lead-pipe cinch. In fact, we have them lashed to the mast. 
Meantime, the mood of the hour should be one, not of undue confidence or boastfulness, but of quiet resolution and deep thankfulness. As the Archbishop of Canterbury so feelingly put it in his sermon in Westminster Abbey last Sunday, now that we have them by the neck, let us go on, in deep and steadfast purpose, till we have twisted the gizzard out of them. The Archbishop's noble words should, and will, re-echo in every English home. Critical people may be inclined to doubt the propriety, or even the propinquity, of some of the literary changes due to the war. But there can be no doubt of the excellent effect of one of them, namely, the increasing knowledge and use among us of the pleasant language of France. It is no exaggeration to say that, before the war, few people in the United States, even among the colored population, spoke French with ease. In fact, in some cases, the discomfort was so obvious as to be almost painful. This is now entirely altered. Thanks to our military guidebooks and to the general feeling of the day, our citizens are settling themselves to acquire the language of our gallant ally. And the signs are that they will do it. One hears every day in metropolitan society such remarks as, Have you read Sulefu? Oh, you mean that book by Hungry Barbouze? No, I haven't read it yet, but I have read Monk Quinn's, you know, by that other man. This is hopeful indeed, nor need we wonder that our best magazines are reflecting the same tendency. Here, for instance, are the opening sentences of a very typical serial now running in one of our best periodicals. For all I know, the rest of the sentences may be like them. At any rate, any magazine reader will recognize them at once. Bonne Mary Pitou, a Conte of Old Normandy. Bonne Mary Pitou sat spinning beside the porte of the humble chaumier in which she dwelt. From time to time her eyes looked up and down the grand route that passed her door. Il ne vient pas, she murmured. He does not come. She rose wearily and went de dawn. Presently she came out again, Deor. Il ne vient toujours pas, she sighed. He still does not come. About her, in the tall trees of the allée, the percherons twittered, while the soft reculement of the bees murmured drowsily in the tall calice of the chauffeur. Il n'est pas venu, she said. Perfect tense, third singular, he is not or has not come. Can we blame him if he didn't? No doubt he was still studying his active verb before tackling Mary Patou. But there, let it pass. In any case, it is not only the magazines, but the novels themselves, that are being transformed by the war. Witness this. By one of our most popular novelists. It was in the summer-house, at the foot of the old garden, that the awaited declaration came. Edwin kneeled at Angelina's feet. At last they were alone. The successful barrage of conversation which he had put up at breakfast had compelled her mother to remain in her trenches, and had driven her father to the shelter of his dugout. Her younger brother he had camouflaged with the present of a new fishing-rod, thus inducing him to retire to the river. The communications with the servants had been cut. Of the strict neutrality of the gardener he was already assured. 
Edwin felt that the moment had come for going over the top. Yet being an able strategist, he was anxious not to attempt to advance on too wide a front. "'Angelina!' he exclaimed, raising himself to one knee with his hands outstretched toward her. The girl started as at the sound of an air-bomb. For a moment she elevated her eyes and looked him full in the tangent. Then she lowered them again, but continued to observe him through her mental periscope. "'Angelina,' he repeated, "'I have a declaration to make.' "'As from what date?' she questioned quietly. Edwin drew his watch from his pocket. "'As from this morning at ten-forty-six, he said. Then, emboldened by her passive attitude, he continued with rising passion in his tone. "'Ever since I met you I have felt that I could not live without you. I am a changed man. My caliber is altered. I feel ten centimeters wider in the mouth than I did six weeks ago.' I feel that my path is altered. I have a new range and an angle of elevation such as I never experienced before. I have hidden my love as best I could till now. I have worn a moral gas-mask before your family. I can do so no longer. Angelina, will you be mine, forming with me a single unit, drawing our rations from the same field kitchen, and occupying the same divisional headquarters?' The girl seemed to hesitate. She raised her eyes to his. "'We know one another so little,' she murmured. Edwin felt that his offensive was failing. He therefore hastened to bring up his means of support. "'I have an ample income of my own,' he pleaded. Angelina raised her eyes again. It was evident that she was about to surrender. But at this moment her mother's voice was heard calling— "'Angelina, Angelina, my dear, where are you?' The barrage had broken down. "'Quick!' said the girl. "'Mobilize yourself. Pick up that tennis racket, and let us hurry to the court and dig ourselves in.' "'But my declaration,' urged Edwin eagerly. "'Accepted,' she said, "'as from eleven to this morning.'" End of section 16